Thank you for remaining standing now as we turn our attention once more to the reading and the hearing of God's Word. The message this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. If you have your copy of the Word with you, open it up and find Ephesians chapter 5 there as I begin reading at verse 1. Hear now the Word of the Lord. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. And walk in love, as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Our good and gracious and most heavenly Father, before us is a, but a small portion of your word, but how profound these two verses are. Help us, we pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit to read and to hear and to meditate upon these words and to heed the exhortations and to know more fully the love of our great God and our Savior, Christ Jesus. For we ask and pray this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. We're considering this morning God's communicable attributes, those attributes of God that we as his creatures created after his image, yet living in the shadow of the fall, may and indeed must seek to manifest in our own lives. Our text this morning from the fifth chapter of Ephesians contains one of the most remarkable commands of the Apostle Paul that he ever gave to any group of Christians. There, in these verses, we're commanded to be imitators of God. Perhaps you've read these words many, many times, or even just now as you heard it and read it, simply washed over you, and you didn't realize just how remarkable a command that is. Scripture tells us that God created the heavens and the earth by the word of His power that he sits enthroned above the surface of the earth, and that all the nations before him are like a drop from a bucket and like the dust on the scales compared to his majesty and his great power. Psalm 99.1 says, The Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. Moses records that Almighty God, the creator and sustainer of heaven and earth, descended on Mount Sinai in fire and spoke out of a fiery cloud and and the ground beneath their feet shook and he spoke these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And the sight was so terrifying that Moses declared that he trembled with fear. The holiness of God caused the seraphim in Isaiah's vision in chapter 6 to cover their faces, not daring to look upon the glory of God, though they had never committed any sin, and they weren't defiled in any way, nor had they ever been rebellious. And yet they were covering their faces and their feet in the presence of the holiness of God, revealing the infinite gap between God the Creator and all of us, His creatures. A.W. Tozer, in the knowledge of the holy, wrote, Forever God stands apart in light unapproachable. He is as high above 
an archangel as he is above a caterpillar. For the gulf that separates the archangel from the caterpillar is but finite, while the gulf between God and the archangel is infinite. The caterpillar and the archangel, though far removed from each other on the scale of created things, are nonetheless one and alike in that they are both created. They both belong in the category of that which is not God and are separated from God by infinitude itself. And yet here in the text before us, we are commanded to imitate God. The Westminster Divines wrote these words about God. There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute. God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of Himself, and is alone in and unto Himself all-sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which He hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting His own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone foundation of all being, of whom through whom and to whom are all things, and hath most sovereign dominion over them, to do by them, for them, or upon them, whatsoever himself pleaseth. In his sight all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creatures, so as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain. He is most holy in all of his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands, to him is due from angels and men and every other creature whatsoever worship, service, or obedience he is pleased to require of them. This is the God we are called to imitate. And as we turn to God's communicable attributes in this message, we will now look at this text from Ephesians 5 under four headings. The imperative the qualification, the short list, and finally, the reason. So first, the imperative. An imperative is simply a command. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. As the verse begins with therefore, it is therefore important to remind ourselves of the context in which we find this command. Here in chapter 5, we find ourselves in the middle of an ethical or more moral imperative section of Paul's letter to the Ephesians in which we Christians are told how we are to live. In the first part of the letter, Paul tells us that the church is built upon the foundation of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It is built upon the foundation of Christ's blood atonement for us and the foundation where, by God's sovereign grace, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be adopted as His sons and daughters. And it's built upon the foundation of the saving work of Christ and then this vision of a holy temple rising to become larger and larger with living stones quarried from Satan's dark kingdom from all over the world, from every tribe and from every tongue and people and nation. We the living stones built up into this spiritual house to be a temple, a spiritual house in which God lives by His Spirit. 
chapters 1 through 3 lay out for us the indicatives. That is the descriptions of what the church is and who we are in Christ. Paul tells us that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. We've been chosen in Him before the foundation of the world so that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. And He has made us accepted in the Beloved. In Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. And this is according to the riches of His grace. In doing this marvelous work, He has made us to know the mystery of His will. So that in the fullness of time, He might gather together in one all things in Christ, things in heaven and things in earth. And this is our inheritance as sons of God. Yes, sons, men and women receive the inheritance as sons of God. As sons of God, we are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Christ is building His church on the foundation of the apostles and prophets where Christ Himself is the chief cornerstone. Christ is building His church so that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. And He is undertaking this great building project so that we might be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man that Christ might dwell in our hearts through faith. And then in chapter 4, Paul turns the corner to the imperatives, according to his familiar pattern. First, he lays out who we are in Christ, and then he tells us what we are to do in Christ. He begins by telling us to walk worthy of the calling with which we were called, in all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We are to speak the truth in love, that we may grow up, in all things into Him who is the head, which is Christ. We are to no longer walk as Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. We are to put off our former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of our minds, and put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Thieves are to put off stealing and put on work and labor that they might have something to give to those in need. Those who once lied and gossiped are to put that off and build others up with their words that their words might impart grace to the hearers. We're to put off all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, and malice. And we are to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave us. And then here, at the beginning of chapter 5, we're called to imitate God as dear children. The King James read, readers may, may see that it says to be followers of God. The Greek word translated followers and imitators is mimetes. It is the root from which we get the word mimic. We are to mimic God. We are to imitate Him. If we are to be like God, we must know what God is like. If we are to know what God is like, we must study God's character. And so, as we study the Bible, we see God's character unfolded before our very eyes. The whole of Scripture is the revelation of God. It's God's self-disclosure. 
If there is anyone here with the thought that we're only talking about a New Testament principle, please remove that idea from your minds. Our understanding of God's eternity and His immutability should banish that thought. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We read in Leviticus 11, For I am the Lord your God, you shall therefore consecrate yourselves, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth, for I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy as I am holy. God's people have always been called to be imitators of Him. And so you may be thinking that's easy to say, but difficult to do. And you would be right, but let's take note of the qualification we find here in verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. We have a perfect heavenly Father who loves us and takes care of us. Christ said, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? Whatever God commands, he is gracious to either directly or indirectly through his appointed means, give. When Christ gave instructions to his disciples to feed the multitudes, he multiplied the fishes and the loaves. But what are you to do under the weight of commands such as be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect, or be holy, for I am holier, or even to be imitators of God? Are we to engage in the futile attempt of trying to fulfill them on our own? Or do we recognize that these demands are beyond us and see them as invitations from the Lord Himself? Jesus desires to be for us, whatever He demands from us, if we would but ask and receive. We are to turn to Jesus confessing, I can't meet your demands without you. And asking, will you be for me what you have asked from me? This exercise of faith is not only the foundation and hope of our standing before God, but also the grace we need for every circumstance we face along the path to glory. And we attain that grace as we in faith exercise ourselves in all His appointed means. He gives grace to the humble. And in so, in all humility, we cry out to Him in prayer, praying for His will to be done. But in our foolishness, we often pray amiss and we pray for that which is outside His will. And so we also need to study His Word to better know how to pray and what to pray for. In all humility, we should... We should give ourselves to His worship, attending to the preaching of His Word and rightly partaking of His sacraments. We need to listen and know that we can't fulfill this command to be an imitator of God on our own. But as His dear children, you have access to the Father, and if you ask Him to give you bread, He will not give you a stone. If we ask Him to show us Therefore, how to be imitators of Him, He will most certainly grant us the help that we need. 
What is it then that we need to imitate? We can't imitate his omniscience, his omnipotence or his omnipresence. We can't imitate his immutability or his eternity, but we can imitate his communicable attributes. And so we'll just take a moment to look at just a few of these. And I've, that brings us to the short list, and they, I've broken them up into four categories. The love of God, the holiness of God, the mercy, compassion, and goodness of God, and the justice and righteousness of God. Following the command to be imitators of God in verse 1, in verse 2 we read the exhortation to walk in love. As Christ also has loved us and given Himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Love. Love is a communicable attribute of God that we are called to imitate. In 1 John 4.16 we find, And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And He who abides in love abides in God, and God in Him. God certainly commands love, and He exemplifies love, and He teaches us about love. But John here says that God actually is love. And from this we see that He is the source of all love that we can find in our hearts. He is the source of everything. And as we come to this command, a command that we are to live a life of love and walk in love, it's not long before we realize that we don't. That there is still, still some of that residual darkness in our hearts. A hardness in that we don't love our neighbor as ourselves. Therefore, if we want to be transformed, if we want to live a life of love and walk in love, we need to know God more fully, to draw closer to Him, to study His character and attributes and imitate Him, for He is the source of love. And we need to cry out to Christ for the help to do this. The metaphor of walking is found in several places in chapters 4 and 5 of Ephesians. Walking is the picture of the activity of daily life. This is our lifestyle. This is who you are. This is how you live. In chapters 1 and 3, Paul declares, this is what God has done. And here in chapters 4 through 6, he declares, this is what you are to do. We are to walk worthy. Meaning we are to walk in humility and long-suffering and in unity. We are to walk in the gifts that have been given to us. But we are also to walk differently. Not as other Gentiles walk. So it is a humble walk. It is a unity walk. It is a different walk. And here in chapter 5, he writes, walk in love. Remember, God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. This is the knowledge of God. And if you don't love, you don't know God, no matter what you claim. If your life isn't characterized by love, you don't know God. If you don't love your brother... The love of God doesn't dwell in you. And so the Apostle Paul is saying the same thing that we've been learning all along. He is saying it in this sense. Walk in love. And if there is no love in your life, or if it is a counterfeit stuff that the world is offering, you're not in the kingdom. And let that be a sober reminder to us all. Recall that familiar verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three. 
But the greatest of these is love. If we don't have love, we are nothing. We could sell all our worldly possessions and give it to the poor, but if it is not motivated by and covered in love, there is no good in it at all. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We are to love earnestly and genuinely. It is a love that casts out all fear and love that covers a multitude of transgressions. We are to love our enemies and do good to them. Above all things, we are to put on love, which is the bond of perfection. As imitators of God, we are to imitate His love. It is a tall order. In fact, with men it is impossible. But with God, not with God, for with God all things are possible. Which brings us to God's holiness. We are also to imitate His holiness. As with all of God's communicable attributes, in God these attributes are found in perfection and fullness. But in man's creatureliness, these attributes are found in imperfection and deficiency. Nevertheless, we are commanded to be holy as He is holy. True holiness is a life set apart that is pleasing to God on all levels possible. To be holy is to be set apart, consecrated, and devoted to God and His purposes. We are to look to His perfect holiness with desire and humility and pursue His holiness. Jerry Bridges has much practical counsel to offer in his book, The Pursuit of Holiness. In it, he writes... We are to come to the Word in a spirit of humility and contrition because we recognize that we are sinful, that we are often blind to our sinfulness, and that we need the enlightening power of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Holiness has more to do with than mere acts. Our motives must be holy. That is, arising from a desire to do something simply because it is the will of God. Our thoughts should be holy since they are known to God even before they are formed in our minds. We need to cultivate in our own hearts the same hatred of sin God has. Hatred of of sin as sin, not just as something disquieting or defeating to ourselves, but as displeasing to God. And this lies at the root of all true holiness. Holiness begins in our minds and works its way out to our actions. This being true, What we allow into our minds is critically important. The television programs we watch, the movies we attend, the books and magazines we read, the music we listen to, the conversations we have, it all affects our minds. We need to ask God daily to search our hearts for sin, those sins that we cannot or will not see. We must be careful to let the Holy Spirit do this searching for us. If we try to search our own hearts, we are apt to fall into one or both of two traps. The first trap is morbid introspection. Introspection can easily become the tool of Satan who is called the accuser. One of his chief weapons is discouragement. He knows that if he can make us discouraged and dispirited, we will not fight the battle for holiness. The second trap 
is that of missing the real issues in our lives. Too often we say we are defeated by this sin or that sin. No, we are not defeated. We are simply disobedient. It might be good if we stopped using the terms victory and defeat to describe our progress in holiness. We know what we mean, but, but rather we should use the terms obedience and disobedience. When I say that I am defeated by some sin, I am unconsciously slipping out from under my responsibility. I am saying something outside of me has defeated me, but when I say I am disobedient, that places the responsibility for my sin squarely on me. We may, in fact, be defeated, but the reason we are defeated is because we have chosen to disobey. We need to brace ourselves up and realize that we are responsible for thoughts, attitudes, and actions. We need to reckon on the fact that we died to sin's reign, that it no longer has any dominion over us, that God has united us with the risen Christ in all His power and has given us the Holy Spirit to work in us. Only as we accept our responsibility and appropriate God's provisions will we make any progress in our pursuit of holiness. Now we look at mercy, compassion, and goodness. In Psalm 145, verses 8 and 9, David praises the Lord, saying, The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and, in great, and great in mercy. The Lord is good to all, and His tender mercies are over all His works. We see in these two verses God's communicable attributes of mercy, goodness, and compassion. I think we can readily see that these are attributes that are accessible to us as obedient and loving Christians. Think about Jesus' healing ministry. His healing ministry was so powerful and so widely known that huge crowds from multiple cities around wherever he was poured out to be healed by Jesus. The crowds were so large and so overwhelming that often people couldn't physically get near Jesus. Often they just, just wanted to touch him. In Mark 1, we read of Jesus healing the leper. Now a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling down to him and saying, to him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. As soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. He did this out of compassion, out of love. Jesus could have healed 10,000 people with a word without ever touching them and said, you're all healed, go home. But Jesus, filled with compassion, wanted to be able to look people in the eye and, and communicate and exemplify, I love you. I want to touch your hand and heal you. I don't have to touch your hand, but I want to. I want to look you in the eye and show you my compassion. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2. The entire life of Christ is a life of mercy and kindness and goodness. 
in the parable of the Good Samaritan, mercy and kindness are put on display, and we are commanded to go and do likewise. And that brings us to justice and righteousness. False religion and hypocrisy are an offense before our holy God. In Amos 5, as a part of the Lord's judgment, we read, I hate, I despise your feast days, and I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. Nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments. But let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. Jesus declares that his judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the, Father, but the will of the Father who sent me. John 5. God's justice and righteousness are perfect, and we are called in accordance with His Word to imitate His justice and His righteousness. And finally, the reason. The reason we are to imitate God and all of His communicable attributes is because God always acts according to His righteous character. God Himself is the fountainhead and source of all wisdom, and He is doing a mighty work in His people and in all His creation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. This is the Christian life. Putting off the old and putting on the new. It is an ongoing and continual process that leads us to and prepares us for glory. That process includes our sanctification. As we imitate God, the Holy Spirit works sanctification in us. All who are effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and spirit created in them, are further sanctified, really and personally, through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, by His Word and Spirit dwelling in them. The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed, and the several lusts thereof and more and more, are more and more weakened and mortified, and they are more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to the practice of true holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. The reason we imitate God is to mortify sin and grow in holiness that we may be saved. Pursue, pursue peace with all people in holiness, without which no one will see the Lord, as we read in Hebrews 12. We are active participants in the story that God is writing according to the biblical pattern that includes a present anticipation of future hope, a hope of glory. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. As we imitate God, it is a process. It is the story of our life in Christ. It is not like flipping a switch, a light switch. The Spirit goes in and the, imi the imitation pops out. There will be tribulation along the way, which produces perseverance, 
which in turn produces character. And as we grow in character, we have the hope of glory an assurance that the Holy Spirit has poured out the love of God in our hearts. And this is the gift of Christ in that He loved us and gave Himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. As we imitate God and walk in love, the aroma of our lives should be sweet-smelling. What is the aroma wafting heavenward from your life? What does your life smell like to God? Is it fragrant? If it is not, then imitate God as dear children. Walk in love. Pursue holiness. We're called upon to live a life of love. What is the fragrance that floats up from your life? What is the fragrance of your home life? What is the fragrance of your marriage? What is the fragrance of your parenting? What is the aroma of how you live toward the poor and the needy, toward lost people, toward those who are hostile to your politics and your principles? What about toward those who sin against you, who hurt you in some way? What is the fragrance wafting up from your life? As you imitate God and worship the perfection of all His attributes, and humbly yield to the commands of His Word, repenting of sins, forgiving others as you have been forgiven, and walk in love, you may be assured that it is a sweet-smelling aroma and pleasing to Him. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we know that You want us to be like Yourself, and we know we can't be like You by ourselves. <clears throat> No wonder it is necessary that Christ lives in us. No wonder it is necessary that the Holy Spirit empowers us. No wonder it is necessary that we depend upon a divine resource. Thank you, Lord, for making us realize that we have to be, but can't be. But can be when we know that we can't be and trust you. Sanctify us in truth, for your word is truth. Strengthen us in our weakness and increase our desire and commitment to be imitators of you. For we pray in the victorious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.